You're listening to the teaching ministry of Discovery Church in Bristol, Tennessee. For more information about Discovery, or for more free audio content, please visit discoverybristol.com. There's a change that takes place in a man when he becomes a dad. I saw it happen to many people before me. I never thought it would happen to me, but when I had kids, all of a sudden something in me changed. And now there's this thing in my life that matters to me in ways I could have never imagined. Now there's this thing in my life that's occupying all of my attention. It's what I'm thinking about all the time. Now there's this thing that has value in a way I could have never dreamed. And that thing, of course, is the Civil War and Civil War history. Because as every dad knows, something happens when a man becomes a dad. All of a sudden, you're fascinated with the Civil War and Civil War trivia, and like, you don't know why. No one can explain it. It's just what happens. And so uh, that happened to me. Once I had kids, now I'm obsessed with Civil War and like trying to read the books on it, watch documentaries on it, and the people around me are just totally bored. But I'm like, this is fascinating. How could you, you know, not love this? And so I'll share with maybe just the dads in the audience this morning, but you know, some of you should at least find this fascinating, a story that I've learned that came up through uh, some Civil War history that I was going through about a lady named Mary Anna Custis. Mary Anna was the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington. I say Martha Washington because, as we all know, George wasn't her first husband, but we won't get into that. But Mary Anna Custis was the great-granddaughter of Martha Washington, and she inherited from her father this huge piece of property, 1,100 acres around the Potomac region of Virginia, beautiful farmland, just beautiful uh, place for like a home and for gardens, just a, a beautiful place. But then the Civil War hit. And of course, Mary Anna and her people were on the, in the region of the South, but as the North pressed further and further down, eventually they had to flee their property. They had to leave this area of Virginia and, and go because the Union Army came down and began to occupy that space. What was once their home turned into a battlefield. What was once their gardens, their farmland, now became a place where the Civil War was being fought. And in this area, as, as the Union Army pressed down and began occupying this area, they began running out of places to bury their dead. All of the local cemeteries had filled up, and they have all of these, these soldiers that had died and no place to bury them. So they start looking around for a burial place for these soldiers, and they notice this beautiful 1,100 acres up overlooking the Potomac River, this beautiful area, and they think that might be a good place to bury soldiers. Then they find out who it belongs to, and more importantly, who the husband was of the person that it belonged to, because as many of you may know, Mary Anna's husband was Robert E. Lee, the great general of the Southern Army, the Confederacy. And so the Union Army finds out, oh, here's this property that belongs to the wife of our enemy. That seems like a really good place to bury our dead, which feels like a great prank to me, right? Like, I mean, because you can go in and tear somebody's house down, but like, if you really want to get at your enemies, like they can always rebuild a house, but you start burying people on their land, like that's a whole other deal, right? So this is what the Union Army did. They began burying people on the property of Robert E. Lee. And as the war continued, this property began to collect more and more dead, more, more gravestones were popping up on this area. And he could only imagine what it would be like to return as the people that owned this land. What once was a beautiful garden, what once was beautiful farmland had now been turned into a graveyard. 
And so, of course, like there's this whole legal deal and, you know, could the government actually like possess this land? Like when the Civil War was over, they, you know, went through all these kind of things. But then eventually Mariana got her land back, but then sold it back to the government for a very cheap price, knowing that it had become more than just a, a farm. It was now a graveyard. And that, of course, was what became Arlington National Cemetery, where these Civil War soldiers were buried, became this national monument. But what was once this beautiful farmland, this beautiful garden area, we turned into a graveyard. And as we look at this, I tell you that story because I think it's a great representation of what we tend to do as humanity. We are really great as humans to take beautiful things like we just sang about, but rather than, you know, as God takes the dirt and turns it into beautiful things, we often take beautiful things and we do the opposite. We turn it into ashes. We see that with Mary Anna's property, it went from a garden to a graveyard. And that's what humanity does. We turn gardens into graveyards. We see that in the Bible, all throughout the history of mankind. We see in the book of Genesis, early, early on, this is exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. God creates all of creation, right? And then he, he makes man and woman, but he's, he's formed this beautiful garden. And the Bible tells us about it in Genesis chapter 2, 15 through 17. It says, the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And other places in the story were told about this garden, more details. There's this huge river that runs through it and other rivers break off from that river. And there's like gold and minerals just laying around in the Garden of Eden. And there's these beautiful trees that have fruit on them that provide food for Adam and Eve. So everything that they need, water to drink, food to eat, is all provided for them in the garden. But beyond that, not only are their, their needs provided, we're told that God himself would dwell and walk about in this garden with his creation. And so Adam and Eve, humans and their creator, are together in a special relationship in this garden. And God sets up that one rule, just one rule they have to follow. Don't eat of this particular tree. There's all kinds of other trees they could eat of, but not this one, God says. And then sure enough, as we read, the serpent enters in to the garden. Evil comes into the story and begins talking to Adam and Eve and tempting them and saying, like, did God really say this? You're going to trust God. Like, look at that one tree. Like, I know there's these other trees, but look at that one. And sure enough, they fall to that temptation. They eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They disobey the one rule God had given them. He had provided them everything, but they decided it still wasn't enough. And with this, now sin creeps into our world. And so, of course, Adam and Eve have to be punished. And so verse uh, 17 of chapter 3 says, God is talking to them. He talks to Adam and Eve and he says, Cursed is the ground because of you. What was once a beautiful garden is now cursed. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust and to dust you shall return. The beauty of creation, this garden was wrecked. And so was the relationship between Adam and Eve and God. That relationship between humans and their creator is severed, it's changed. They can no longer be with God in the way that they were. 
And I think into all of us, into humanity now, just kind of crept this emptiness, this emptiness that was filled by God, but now without God in our lives in that way, there's this new sort of longing, this new desire that we have that we've seen humanity chase and try and fill that emptiness all throughout history, but it just leads to more destruction whenever we try to fill that emptiness with something besides God. We have a tendency to turn gardens into graveyards. And this morning, for, for the summer, we're kicking off a new series. And some of you maybe already jumped to where I'm going with this by some of the language I'm using, but we're starting a new series called Verses. And that title is even really just a play on words because we're talking about verses of songs that we often sing, but we're not preaching to you about songs that we sing. We're preaching to you the verses that those songs are based off of. And so we want to look all summer long at the songs that we typically sing that are kind of in our rotation here at Discovery, but not just the songs, like what are they based off of? So that when we sing these things, we really know the scriptures that we're singing, like what we are talking about. Because I think we often neglect like how rich some of these songs are that we sing. And I know many people like every now and then I'll meet some of me like, yeah, but I just miss the old hymns. And I get it. Like I love hymns too. Like I grew up on that. But there's sometimes this idea of like, have we written every song about God? Like, should we just stop writing all the songs because we have the hymns? No way. There's so much more richness to be sung about our creator. And that's what we're trying to do. And so as we open up this series this morning, we're looking at the theme of, of gardens and graveyards. And we're looking at how, as we've sung already, God creates beauty out of our darkness, but we tend to take beauty and turn it into darkness. And you see this not just in Adam and Eve, but as history continues throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve, of course, have two sons, right? Cain and Abel. And what happens? One of them kills the other. So immediately we see more evil. Later down the line, we see two other brothers, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob deceives Esau, and he deceives his whole family, and he brings just chaos into what should have been good. We see the nation of Israel as it's grown larger and larger. They become enslaved by the nation of Egypt. So now we have this one whole group of people that are made slaves by another group. And then when Egypt sees that Israel is growing to try and stop that growth, the nation of Israel begins murdering the children of the people of Israel. And so we have just darkness that comes out of what should have been beauty. We have darkness and destruction. As it continues, we see tribes warring against tribes. We see nations warring against nations. Even the best people in the Bible, even our heroes that we like to talk about, camp's coming up next week, even the heroes we talk about, they, they don't do great, right? If we look at Abraham, like one of the pillars of the faith, right? Abraham and his wife made a deal that Abraham should sleep with his wife's servant so that they could have a child. And Abraham does it. And then when that kind of goes sideways, Abraham abandons this woman, his wife's servant, and her child, his son, to the wilderness, just sets him off. Again, we see that we tend towards destruction. The story of David, the guy who slew the giant, who was a man after God's heart, still found a way to cause destruction when he has his way with Bathsheba. And then she becomes pregnant and he knows that she's married and so he orders that his troops pull back from where Bathsheba's husband is fighting so that her husband would be killed in battle. Even the best of the people we read about in the Bible have a real darkness in them. Again, because they're chasing this emptiness, the emptiness that comes in all of humans when we don't have that same relationship with God like we did in the Garden of Eden. And so we see all throughout the Bible's history, this darkness come. 
We see it in our own world. We might even see it in our own lives. I know uh, for us, we have this back porch. Our house is connected to a back like porch. It's screened in, but it's got a hard surface on the ground. So it's a great spot for our kids to play around. Like when it's raining or whatever, then go just have a ball on that porch. And me as a good, good father, I've provided for them all that they need on this porch, right? They have their bikes, they have their toys, everything they could need on this porch. It's a veritable garden of Eden for kids that want to play, right? I've created this for them. Well, one day I accidentally left a red Sharpie on this porch. This porch that I'd cleaned, I'd mopped, I'd wiped down the banisters of, red Sharpie. My boy Levi, I think he was like two, maybe three at the time, I don't know. He goes in and he sees this red Sharpie, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And he's got a decision with this red Sharpie. Everything he needs is laid before him. Beautiful, pristine porch marker in his hand. What do you think he does? I mean, he went to town all over our benches, up the banister and just red Sharpie that I am still not able to totally get off. And as we looked at it, we're like, it's not even like just normal coloring. Like it looks hateful. Like it looks like he just did it in anger. Like he can't write, of course, at this point. And we're looking at him like, I don't know what he's trying to write, but I'm pretty sure it's racist. Like I'm offended, even though it's not real words. Like we gotta get rid of this or people are gonna be shocked when they see it. That's the tendency of humanity. Right? He's, and he's just two or three. Our, we tend towards destruction. You see that in other areas uh, of our lives. I know uh, growing up, I fished this river in West Virginia and just beautiful woods in West Virginia. You could just, as a kid, just felt so huge and, and peaceful and you could just get lost in these woods. But then somewhere as I grew older, this river or the woods surrounding it was sold to a logging company which there's a whole conversation there. I mean, it brought jobs to people. It was helpful to the area. But for my purposes, when I went to that river, I went for just the beauty and the peace and quiet. But now the, the mountains have just been stripped and it just got real ugly. And like you're down there fishing in a huge 18-wheeler filled with like logs coming by. It's like, Brr. and you're like, man, this place got wrecked. And it's just an example of how we take beautiful things often and we destroy them. And again, I'm not trying to have a conversation where like, was that right or wrong? Like, I'm not trying to get into an environmentalist like platform up here. Because meanwhile, I'm down on the river just decorating the trees with like fishing lures and fishing line, right? And be like, this place used to be party or like, I'm not the guy to lead that conversation. But I use this to say we have a tendency towards destruction. Even when we're trying to create something we, we tend to destroy it first, right? We tend to wreck things in order to create it, right? And sometimes you're like, I don't know which was more or less helpful, but humanity, we have a tendency towards destruction. Again, you see it in our history. We talked about the Bible's history, but our world's history, our nation's history. Earlier, I, I pulled an anecdote from the Civil War, but man, what a dark time for our nation. A time when our country, when the people of America were enslaving other people. And this came to blows between the nation, fighting over this topic of slavery. Can this be allowed? Should we let this abuse happen? And it tore our nation apart. And so many people died during the Civil War. It was 620,000 men died in the Civil War, roughly 2% of the population. Darkness. Later on, we see 1914, another war starts up, this time not between one nation, but between many nations. And the writer, H.G. Wells, who you may have heard of, he wrote a book about this war, but he titled it The War to End All Wars. Because that's what they thought about this war at this time. Like, this will be the last war. It's a nasty one. It's going to be the last one. We call that war World War I because it was the first of wars that we had. And then there was another war with the whole world. And there's been many wars since because humanity tends towards 
destruction. In, a, in our own lives, in the past month or so, we've seen some of this darkness and destruction. And I know you, like me, would watch the news coming out of Texas of the school shooting that happened and just be lost with such darkness. Where a school, a place that should be filled with education and growth, it should be like a garden, instead was just destroyed. And death was brought into this garden. Because as humans, we tend towards destruction. And I want to be clear that I'm not saying they And none of my language here am I saying they tend towards destruction. That other side, people that are different from us, they do these things. I'm saying we. Because you know in your life there's also areas where you've taken that red Sharpie on the clean porch, right? We've all had things that we have done where we ourselves have tended towards destruction, towards sin. And many of us may have wrecked our own lives or the lives of those around us because of it. And if you haven't done it yourself, chances are someone close to you has brought destruction into your life. Whether it's through being unfaithful in a marriage or, or any number of things, we see that humanity tends towards destruction, not creation. We lean into darkness and not into beauty. And so all throughout scripture, this concept is grappled with of what's up with this darkness in humanity. We see human after human trying to fill this emptiness, this void, and then we get to the prophets. We get to a guy, Ezekiel, where Israel's in a bad place. Israel has been so disobedient towards God, they're exiled from their land, and here God appears to Ezekiel, this prophet, in a vision. In Ezekiel 37, this is the vision laid out to Ezekiel. It says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. So Ezekiel is brought to this place where it looks like it's an old battlefield where something has happened here and just all these people are laid waste and there's all these bones there and they're dry. It's like they've been there for a long time, baked in the sun. And then he says that God said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, I mean, who knows? And he's asked this question, can, can this death, from this death, can there be life? And I think it's a question we have all asked when we've come to face to face with this darkness, maybe because of something dumb that we've done or because of something someone did to us. And we ask this question, can there be life here? Can there be life in what has been turned into a graveyard? Can these bones, can my bones live? When we witness the darkness in our world, we might ask, where is the life in this? Can there even be hope? Can there be light in the midst of this darkness? And God poses that question to the prophet Ezekiel in this field of death, in this graveyard. And then we go down and says, thus says the Lord God to these bones. He speaks to Elijah and he says, speak to them. And he says, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And he tells Ezekiel to speak his words, to speak God's words over this field of death. And then Ezekiel says, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And there were sinews, or I'm sorry, his bones came together bone to bone. 
And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh came upon them and skin covered them. And it's totally creepy, right? Like, I mean, I'm reading this I'm like, oh, golly. Like it just, you see in a half like nervous system of guy, like no skin and it's like growing up and like gross, but then also cool, right? You're hearing these bones rattling and then they're like coming up out of the ground. Like we don't know what it might've looked like, but then God speaks to Ezekiel and he says this, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves And I raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you on your own land, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Did you catch there? God doesn't just promise to bring life from death. He promises to put his spirit within his people. Those who have been trying to fill this emptiness, those who've been chasing after the Garden of Eden so long, desiring that relationship that humanity once had with God, he's saying, I will be within you. I will put my spirit in you. There will no longer be emptiness in those who choose to follow me. And so Ezekiel sees a graveyard come to life. And we know what God is talking about because we're on the other side of this prophecy, right? We know that not long after Ezekiel, I mean, relatively long after Ezekiel, but like pages in the Bible, Jesus comes on the scene. And we see Jesus in in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke. Jesus is in the desert in the wilderness. And there he's tempted by Satan. We talked about this Wednesday night with the youth group. That serpent that was in the Garden of Eden comes to also tempt Jesus. But unlike Adam and Eve, who failed the temptation, Jesus passes every test. He does not submit to the temptation of the enemy. And after this, he walks into the synagogue and he begins quoting from another prophet, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 61. Jesus reads out from this passage, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Jesus cites that passage in Isaiah saying, it's happening in me. I am the one that's gonna turn ashes into beauty. I'm the one that's gonna turn like the Psalm that Chris read earlier. I will turn your mourning into dancing. I will take your death and I will breathe life into those bones. I will create a garden where there was once a graveyard. And we see Jesus do those very things. He goes around feeding the hungry, preaching the good news to the poor. He goes around giving sight to the blind, helping people who could not walk, giving them the ability to walk. He brings life into our world, light into our darkness, but we couldn't handle it. And so Jesus is taken, he's arrested, he's put on trial, and he's executed. And he hangs on the cross, and there he dies, and his body is then put in a tomb. And we're brought back to the graveyard with a lady named Mary Magdalene who's coming after three days Jesus has been in the ground and she's coming to take care of his body to have it properly like fixed for burial. And she's going and the Bible gives us some details about Mary Magdalene. We know that she was once under demonic oppression, but Jesus freed her from that oppression. And so she who was once filled with the demonic presence but had been emptied of that now goes to Jesus's tomb expecting to find it full. 
But instead, when she gets there, John 20 tells us that Mary stood weeping outside the tomb because the tomb was empty. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And they're like, hey, this is a happy occasion. Don't you get it? But she doesn't get it. She says to them, they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus, the one who was supposed to be dead, but he's standing right there. And she sees Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And then we get this great little detail, supposing him to be the gardener, supposing Jesus to be the gardener. She came to a graveyard. Now she meets somebody. She's like, who's this guy? Seems like maybe he's a gardener. And she says to him, not recognizing him, sir, they've carried him away. If you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, in the same voice that he spoke to her when she was under demonic power, with the same voice that he commanded Satan to flee from her life, he says to her, Mary. And she recognizes his voice then. She recognizes the way he says her name. Maybe the first thing she heard after she was freed from the oppression of the enemy was that Mary. And right then she turns and she sees him in an Aramaic. She says, Rabbi, which means teacher. And then Jesus said to her, don't cling to me. She's grabbing all over. For I've not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers, the disciples, and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples that I have seen the Lord. And then she said everything that happened to them. She goes and tells them about it. And here in a graveyard, we meet the gardener. I think John is intentional about pointing that detail out of who Mary mistakes Jesus for because we're in a graveyard, but then we're reminded of that original garden, the Garden of Eden. And we meet the one who created it. We meet Jesus, the son of the creator, the one that was at creation. We meet the gardener in a graveyard the one who had just walked out of his own tomb, who brought life into death. And because he, on his own power, defeated the grave and defeated the enemy, we can too. And he speaks to Mary and he tells her, man, tell the disciples all of these things. And she goes and talks about this life that has come from death. Our story, our tendency is always towards death and destruction. But in God, it is always towards life and beauty. Jesus walked out of his grave so that we could too. And so this morning, if you have found yourself in a graveyard, again, whether it's because of your own sin and stupidity or because of someone else's, or just the weight that comes with living in our time of just seeing sadness often and tragedy after tragedy, if, if that is weighing on you, just feel like, man, I am in a field of bones. I am in a graveyard. If you feel that, know that we have hope that we can have life, know that we can be filled by the Spirit because of what Jesus did for us on the cross and because he came back from death into life, so can we. And Jesus tells Mary to go and tell people about this. If you're looking around at our world and saying, man, where is the hope? Where is the answer to all this darkness? All I see is death and destruction. Where is the light? Know that you're the light because you have the spirit of God filling you, because you have the presence of Jesus in your life, now you get to go and be life in the midst of death. You get to go and plant gardens 
in the middle of graveyards so that the people around you who are still in the midst of death and destruction can know that there is hope, can learn about the promises that we all have, promises laid out in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. I started in Genesis, and, and when Chris saw my notes this morning, he's like, mm, we're going to be a while because I'm doing the whole Bible, right? But we cannot end without these promises. In Revelation, we get this vision that John the disciple has had, and he says in Revelation chapter 2, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. All those areas that we had destroyed were remade. All those battlefields that we had taken and, and turned gardens into graveyards are, are gone. They're gone away and God rebuilds it. He makes something new. The first heaven, the first earth passed away and the sea was no more. All of our destruction we created, God recreates. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Just as it was in the Garden of Eden. God will once again walk among his people. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore for the former things, the things that we wrecked have passed away. Not because we earned it, not because we're doing a great job with it, but because our God is good to us. The former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Then in the next chapter, we're given this imagery of what this will look like. It says, then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life. Just like the garden of Eden had a river flowing through it and there were trees with delicious fruit on them and one of them was the tree of life. We see that tree again at the end of everything. God has recreated for us the garden of Eden. And this time it's not for the first man and woman, it's for all of us who decide to be with God. And it says the, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So there's not like in season and out season, all the time we will be provided for. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Don't we need it? Don't we need that healing? No longer will there be anything accursed. No longer will there be anything torn down. No longer will there be a garden that we can turn into a graveyard. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Our promise in the midst of our, our present graveyard is that one day we get to live in a garden. One day, those of us who decided, I want to follow the man that kicked open his own grave. I want to give my life to him. Let his spirit fill me. Those of us who make that decision, we get to be with our creator again in a garden, in a new heaven, in a new earth where everything we have done to wreck this one has passed away. Why? Because he loves us. And where we tend towards destruction, he tends towards creation. Where we tend towards life, he tends towards death. And he allows us to have that life with him. Wait, I said that last one. You know what I mean. You're with me. I got excited. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to stand up together this morning. We're going to sing a song called, anybody want to guess? Graves in the Gardens. 
We're going to sing that, and I want us to, to do more than just singing. We've already had communion with each other, but I want this to be like a second communion. And we, we took the, the bread and the cup earlier, but now we're going to participate in this song that reminds us in remembrance of Jesus what he did for us by walking out of his own tomb so that we too get to leave a tomb behind us. So that in our dark world right now, we can begin planting and growing so that where there was once death, we can bring life. Are you ready to sing that with us? Amen.